numbers fall into place when numbers fall into place. But once you understand the story and the story behind any company, any asset is what makes that asset tick? Like, why is Tesla worth, you know, half a trillion dollars? Once you understand the why, everything else falls into place. Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon, the investing show with a buzz. Sit back, relax. Let's take the edge off, grab a nice glass of bourbon, and enjoy. Cheers from your host, James Vermillion. But first, let me kindly remind you, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. I'm James Vermillion, founder of Vermillion Private Wealth, and I'm excited today to sip on a bourbon I haven't had before and chat with the very interesting Barat Canadia, founder of Veristrat. Barat has valued over 2,000 businesses, real estate, industrial, government infrastructure, public, and private companies. Some unique assets appraised by Barat include the Golden Gate Bridge, the Atlanta Airport, Uber, Airbnb, Yahoo, the Brooklyn Bridge, the Mirage Casino in Las Vegas, and many, many others. He signed off on over 4,500 valuations with $2.6 trillion in assets globally, and he lives in San Francisco in the Bay Area with his family and enjoys sailing, golfing, skiing, and horseback riding. So I am excited to talk to Barat and learn a little bit about valuations and software as a service. So let's do it. Barat, hello. Thanks for coming on the show. How are you? Hey, James. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Now, I, you know, I don't know if I'm going to release this video or not, but there was an unexpected pleasant surprise that that you brought, and that is you lit up a cigar, and that inspired me, so I lit up a pipe. So now we're smoking and we're about to start drinking, so, so thanks for that. And I just uh, took a sip of your small batch bourbon. Wow, it is smooth. This is going to go down easy. Yeah, so I'm excited about this one. I've never had this particular batch. So this is um, Old Carter. It's batch number nine, which I, was pretty recently released. And <laughs> all of their batches are, are small batch, but this one is especially small. There were about 1,500, um, little over 1,500 bottles made, um, produced, and released. And this is coming in at about 116.8 proof. So to me, that's uh, right in that sweet spot. Not going to be too terribly hot, but it, it should provide a nice, strong uh, whiskey base for you there. So this is very well done. Mm -hmm. What I look for is balance in a whiskey. This is very balanced. So I get, it's got a nice cinnamon. I almost get like, you know, those red hot candies. I almost get a little bit of that there and some, almost a, salt some salted popcorn or something it's kind of interesting very good i, I get i i get uh, aftertaste of cinnamon yeah i could see that um i i get uh caramel in um, yes a, 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 the front is caramel yes chocolate and caramel for sure it's very thick it's got a yeah you know I mean, it's got legs going down the glass here it's a very thick thick bourbon yeah Oh, and it lingers. Nice. It's, that finish lingers, but not 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 in a bad burning way. Just an, it kind of just sits there and lets you soak it up and enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. No, very nice. Well, good. You're out in the Bay Area of California, so there's actually a California link with this bourbon. Um, this is like I said, Old Carter, and it's the brainchild basically of Mark and Sherry Carter, who are of Napa Valley fame. They. Um, had Carter Sellers, and I think, don't quote me on this, I think it's their cab that is very, very highly rated um, and, and well thought of, um, although I think their their wines in general are pretty pretty highly regarded. So pretty cool stuff for them to transition over to the, to the bourbon world um, successfully and really put out a, a nice product. So glad to share it with you today and, uh, and also smoke this pipe here and, and you with your cigars. So I know we'll have a good that's that's how the best talks happen, right? Um, yeah, and uh, 
yeah, man after my own heart. Absolutely. You won me over. What do you need? Awesome. What do you want? Awesome. Where do I Very send the good. check? <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's let's do this. I, I, I want to get into SaaS software as a service and talk about that. I talk a lot about innovation um, and investing on this show, but I want to give you, because you're coming from a unique perspective, um, really being on the business valuation side out in California where there's so much um, entrepreneurship, especially in the tech space, especially in the software space. So why don't you just tell a little bit about what you do as far as valuing businesses and how you got into that? Yeah. Um, so James, I'm one of the um, few um, evaluation people in the world who can value uh, tangible assets on one side of the spectrum. So like a factory or a power plant, um, or a copper mine on one side of the spectrum. On the other side of the spectrum, intangible assets, like a patent or a trademark or a copyright or what have you, um, and everything else in the middle, which are entire businesses, large, small, public companies, private companies, or startups. Um, most people in my world, they silo themselves into doing one type of a asset or one type of a valuation. So they might say, I only appraise commercial real estate for tax purposes. Um, whereas I say that, hey, I can appraise almost all kinds of assets for different purposes. Now, the reason I can say that I, I am good at doing it because over the last 20 years, I have appraised all kinds of assets, including some of the most unique assets in the world. For example, um, I have appraised the Brooklyn Bridge. I have appraised the Golden Gate Bridge here. I have appraised the Atlanta Airport. Um, I have appraised the Alaskan Pipeline. So I have appraised some weird assets. So that's why I'm not afraid to roll up my sleeves and think outside the box. I have appraised uh, large tech companies like Uber, Airbnb, Roku, Marketo, and others. Um, and the way I got into it is, you know, um, growing up in India, you know, I would look at the stars and I would dream about coming to America and becoming an appraiser. Um, <laughs> What, you didn't buy that? It sounded good, but no, I didn't buy that. <laughs> no, James, it was one of those things, right? I mean, it was well, it was my first job out of college and turned out I was half good at it and I stuck with it. So let me ask you this. You you know, that is unusual in the sense that having the the breadth to be able to appraise so many different types of assets and assets get their value, so to speak, for or, or value different ways for different reasons. And it reminds me a little bit, one of the questions I get a lot is, are you what kind of investor are you? Are you a growth investor? Are you a value investor? And I think that's such a strange concept to some degree. I mean, I invest how I invest, and it's really a culmination of learning from so many different people and so many different types of investors. I have a hard time boxing myself in and saying, I fully subscribe to this one's particular set of investing principles that some person developed 40 years ago. I try to take the experiences I've had, the the books I've read, the people I've met, and have tried to kind of create a, an investment approach that makes sense with my own mind. Because I think people are best at what they do when they're doing it, when they're being themselves, instead of trying to fit into some other kind of structure. So I think that's really interesting for you to say that that you can kind of step outside, look at an asset, and probably provide some unique perspectives. Because I imagine people get in that echo chamber when all they're looking at is, you know, I only underwrite bridges for bond underwrite, or I only praise bridges for bond underwriting. You know, mm -hmm. at some point, you lose some perspective on the rest of the world. So, I mean, does that make sense? Absolutely. Um and, and I can empathize with what you're saying is people ask me, hey, you're a value investor, a growth investor. Like, you know what it is I feel, James? And tell me, share me, share your thoughts with me. I think people prefer putting people in a box. Mm -hmm. 
it's almost like putting you in a Rolodex that, okay, Vermillion, V, I'm going to throw him in the V column, right? So yeah. James, he's a value investor. Oh, he's also a growth investor. Wait, do I need to put him in two columns now? But my spreadsheet doesn't work that way. Right. You know, that's, I feel what it is. Um, yeah. So, uh, I, you know, I have, you know, I've been fortunate. I travel and I have businesses in different parts of the world. And people are asking me, so where do you live? I'm like, I live here now, but I also have a house there. I also have a house there. Well, but where do you live? I'm like, what? <laughs> so basically you want to try to put me in a box. Answer the question, Bharat. Where do you live? <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm like, I live wherever my wife tells me to live. <laughs> now that's an honest answer. Obviously, we as humans only have so much time to bring in information. And so I think that's kind of the natural way we deal with it is to try to quickly compartmentalize things. Um, but I think that ends up really limiting people. I mean, I've invested in companies that I saw a greater vision that if you take their financials and take them to any value investor, they're going to say, you're out of your damn mind. Um, look at, you know, and they'll pull out metrics. They'll look at the P to E ratio. They're going to look at all these things. They're going to compare them to other companies, many of which they probably shouldn't be compared to because they're, they're very different. Um, and then I've invested in other companies you would take to a growth, a quote unquote growth investor. And they would say, you know, this company, you know, that there's nothing overly exciting about them, this and that. To me, that doesn't mean they both can't be in my portfolio or in my clients' portfolios because as long as they serve a purpose and I'm buying them for a reason that I can justify, what's the problem? Precisely. And, and uh, you know, in your business especially, you have to be um, a agnostic investor because you would want different types of clients in your portfolio. So say, for example, you have a 28-year-old couple which just bought their house and is on their way to have their first or second child. Well, they're likely going to be skewed on the growth side, whereas you have a client who's in their early 50s, mid-50s, well, they're at the peak of their career, so they're probably looking more towards preservation of capital. So it would be to your detriment to tell them that, hey, no, sorry, James Vermillion, I only do growth capital. I only do you know, help young clients. No, that, you know why? They need help too. And it's not about right. just making money. Yeah, I mean, we all are in business to make money, and let's not fool ourselves, but Honestly, you make the best money when your first rule is to help people. If you truly help people, money falls into place. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I, I, and I, I try to run my business that way. If I take care of my clients, they're going to bring me new clients. They're going to continue to be my clients as they earn more, as they invest more. And um, 20 years down the road, when this business is more mature, um, it'll be a, a, a great business that does very well for me and my family. So uh, I agree with you 100% on that. Let me ask you this. I heard you in another interview say something oh to the effect of, <laughs> no, this is a good one. This is a good one. I saved those for later. Uh, you, you said, I'm a numbers guy and I understand the numbers, but I'm trying to understand the story. I think that's missed in investing and whether it's on the private equity side or on, you know, in the public markets, Sometimes people get so just deep in the figures and the numbers and comparing them to other numbers and figures and algorithms and all these things. They forget, they forget to step back and look at the story. Sometimes it's staring at you in the face and you get lost in the weeds of, of analysis. Is that something you see in your business? Um, I, I imagine it, it must be. Yes. And, uh, you know, honestly, James, numbers are easy. And uh, honestly, numbers are easy. Numbers will fall into place if you know how the business works or once you understand the story. I'll give you an example, right? Uh, we have, um, I have two young children, um, eight and six, and we're doing um, summer camps and summer schools. So all the summer camps I looked at, 
right? Um, and all the Asian parents, right? Indian and Asian parents are big into science and math, science and math, science and math. Fuck science and math. Um, and I said, nah, I don't want my kids to be doing science and math only. You know what I did? I enrolled them for language classes to the dismay of all my friends, because all my friends and everybody is in <laughs> science and math classes, right? Sure. So there do my kids are doing English, Hindi, and Mandarin classes, three languages. Why? Because the way I figure, they need to understand the person they're working with speak his or her language, maybe not fluently, but understand the culture, understand the story, understand where they're coming from. Once they do that, then everything else will fall into place. For example, you. Now I'm starting to understand you more, your story. You know, you're a Kentucky guy. You're an old school. You're an old soul. You're a young guy, but you're an old soul. I get it. Um, and, and I appreciate the classiness that you bring to your podcast. So, again, it's the story. I don't care what your numbers are. I don't care what your AUM is. You know, it, numbers fall into place when numbers fall into place. But once you understand the story and the story behind any company, any asset is what makes that asset tick? Like, why is Tesla worth, you know, half a trillion dollars? Once you understand the why, everything else falls into place. Yeah, I I, I, I get that. I, and I wish it wouldn't have taken me so long to realize that because I can remember being a young investor and I was fortunate enough to have kind of taken this interest at a really young age. And I can remember being really young and listening to earnings calls. I mean, that's how big of a, a dork I was. I was listening to earnings calls at 17 or 18 and listening to these analysts ask their questions and, and everything. And then later, you know, the next week or whatever, you start to see upgrades and downgrades coming in. And I remember thinking like, oh, these analysts must be these really brilliant people, like very smart people. Oh, they got three price upgrades this week. It doesn't mean anything. I've learned that. It truly doesn't mean jack shit. They don't, they oftentimes don't have their pulse on the actual business. And they're so stuck in some method of valuation. That's not the same method that the rest of the market's using. So it's totally meaningless. Oh, don't get me started on analysts. There are a bunch of idiots who are just, you know. <laughs> and, and, I, and I say this because I'm an analyst, you know. I mean, at, at, at the root of it, I started my career as an analyst, right? Um, right. And, and I know all the mistakes analysts make, and that's why um, analysts are trained to get to a number, they are trained to get to that right number and by God, they will get there. And it, it's one of those things, you know, it, it's a predicament, if you will, right? So once you get to the right number, you are a good analyst. But if you train yourself always to get to that right number, you start becoming a bad analyst because <laughs> you start missing the forest for the trees. Right. Um so it's one of those things, right? There's some balance somewhere. And I think uh, a good analyst or a good numbers person needs to find that for herself. I want to shift a little bit to entrepreneurship and, and a couple of things um, on that front. I saw, I, I watched a lot and listened to a lot of, of your, your videos and things. I, I really enjoy what you do. And, and um, I've learned Thank a lot you. just from watching your, your YouTube series on valuation. Um, Here's a stat you said, and this, I guess it kind of surprised me when I like originally, but then when I thought about it, I was like, okay, yeah, I guess that's really not too surprising. 630,000 new businesses approximately are formed each year. Three of those will, will go on to become unicorns, meaning their valuations exceed $1 billion. That's kind of mind blowing. Three out of 630,000. Now, obviously, Many of those businesses go on to become very valuable, but but not a billion dollars. What do you think it is? What is really separates, you know, a five hundred million dollar business from the unicorn? Like, what is it that that you see that that, that the unicorns have in common? I guess. <laughs> great question. Um, no, truly great question. 
And I say that because I am giving a TEDx talk in September, James. And I was doing a lot of soul searching when I had to come up with a topic for my TED talk that what am I going to talk about? And what you just asked me, that's the topic of my TED talk. Perfect. My TED talk's, my TED talk's title is um, Key to a Billion Dollar Valuation. So what is it? that some companies make it and some companies make it without a product, without anything. And right. some companies which have everything going for them, they sell for a meager $20 million. Now, right. You know, $20 million is a lot of money, but compared to 5 billion, it's lunch money. Um, and this is the journey I embarked upon when I was doing my research and I'm, uh, writing my TED talk and I'm still doing research. I have my TED talk written. Um, but as I find more, I keep refining it. I keep refining it. So coming back to the point, this is what I think separates the men from the boys. The CEOs or business leaders or management teams that grind it out every day, literally show up to work every day, and they have operational um, commitments on a daily basis, they're the ones who make it. You know, in, in, um, in business school, strategy is a big term. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, what's your strategy? It's like, look... <laughs> Culture eats strategy for breakfast, as they say, right? And what is culture? Culture is something you do every day, your habits. What do you do? That is your culture. How do you treat people? Do you have a birthday party for every employee, right? Do you have a scrum call every day? How do you report to each other? How do you keep each other accountable? These are the things that really make the difference. For example, um, there's a company here called Carta. It used to be called eShares, and now it's a billion, you know, it's a $5 billion company, if I'm right. I used to do their valuations, not anymore. I haven't done their valuation in two, three years. Um, their CEO, Henry, he has a rule, and which is very anti-cool or anti-Silicon Valley or anti-millennials, but he has a rule. You got to show up to work, show up to work. Now, again, I'm talking pre-COVID right now. I'm sure the rule. Right, happened. right. You got to be there physically at work at 8.30, no matter what. And that's the culture they've developed. And it's very Japanese of them or what have you, very East of them, that they all take their shoes out at the entrance before they get into work. Yeah, that is. Yeah. It was kind of kooky. But if you say it's kooky, but at the same time, he's dialing everybody into that mind frame or paradigm so ceos or management teams that can really connect with their employees and dial them into their way of thinking and the way they do that is by touching base on a daily basis right investing in that culture on a daily basis those are the companies that make it and the other ones don't well that's interesting and i mean to me that's that's unique they had a unique culture and i think not that you can be unique and bad because that's not going to work, but I do think having a culture where employees feel a part of something different can be a major advantage. Maybe it's not even something they love. Maybe it's just, like you said, kooky, but it's different and it they can own that a little bit. And when someone asks them about where do you work, they can actually have a story to tell instead of saying, well, I sit around and write code all day. They can say, hey, yeah, it's kind of this, this strange, interesting place where we've, we've got to take our shoes off. When we come in the door, we've got to be there at 830 on the spot. And, uh, you know, they, they do these other things that, that are maybe a little unusual in the Western business world. But, but I think there's something to that. I can buy that. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, at the end of the day, I mean, I'm an entrepreneur. I have employees. And what I have learned is you got to get your employees to think all think in the same direction. Now, there's a big difference in thinking exactly like you 
right? So all the sailboats, are, are you a sailor? Well, actually, I got into sailing a few years ago with my wife's uncles that they both are sailors and I love it, but it's just, it's, they're, aren't very many places around here. Obviously there are a couple big lakes that you can kind of sail on and, and it's fun. And I learned the ropes a little bit, but uh, it's certainly on my, my bucket list of things I want to learn and really get into and sooner rather than later, hopefully. So next time you're in the San Francisco Bay area, I want you to ping me and I will take you sailing under the golden gate bridge. Yes. Like 0.001% of the population has seen the bridge from the bay from under the bridge and it's a very unique perspective I'm so in. anyway when you sail right so every boat is sailing in the same direction if you're going together but every boat has got its own problems or own unique aspects right they could be different sizes different shapes different sails um, similar to that right you want your employees to be all sailing in the one direction but also give them some leeway, give them flexibility of sailing in their own way, right? If the wind is moving this way, well, there's not much anybody can do about it. They're going to have to adjust their sails to move in this direction. But they all have some flexibility in how they move in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And, man, got me uh, thinking about sailing, sailing on the mind now. So so I like that analogy. And, um, you know, I heard you, another thing I heard you say, and, and I've heard this kind of metaphor before, going back to business owners and founders and things like that, you, you compared them to a person who jumps off a cliff and builds the parachute on the way down and hopes that they do it right and that it will work. And I think that's a really good metaphor because we have this idea, right, when we see successful businesses that someone woke up with the idea they wrote a business plan, they executed it to perfection, and the company that they imagined is now what they end up with, and all went according to plan. And and <laughs> I know, and I know you know, that never happens. That's probably one one millionth of all businesses, if that. Maybe there's no business that that's actually happened with. It's a Nothing series. Yeah, it's many, many, many micro decisions and some large decisions, and it's a lot of pivots. It's a lot of reactions to what you're learning and the feedback you're getting based on your product or your service. And it's finding ways up, under, and around hurdles as they come up. Um, I mean, is that accurate uh, description? Because as a business owner myself, right when you think you know what you're doing and you've got a pretty good hold on things, COVID happens or something happens with uh, prices of raw materials or, you know, there are just things you're never going to anticipate. And having that flexibility, being able to think and, and execute quickly and having the ability to say, I'm okay going off plan. In fact, I have to go off plan is, is really important. I think. Yeah, very much. Um, you know, two quotes come to mind. One is the only thing constant is change. Uh -huh. Um, and the other one, one of my favorites, uh, from one of my favorite authors is, um, uh, the secret of getting ahead is getting started. So if you think you're going to plan out to, you know, I mean, business plan is important, right? So at least sure. you have some path, right? So when I'm going hiking with my children, right, I look at the map and I'm like, all right, so this is the route we're going to take and this, that. but once you're on the hiking path, well, the tree fell down. All right. So that's not on the map. <laughs> all right. So we're going to take a detour here. Well, the dog went dashed in this direction. Oh, crap. So we got to go find the dog now. <laughs> now you got to find the trail back. Well, that's nowhere written in the instructions on the hiking guide. So that's exactly what entrepreneurship is. You know, you have a way, you have a vision of how you're going to do this. But it's going to work this way only 20% of the time. 80% of the time, you're just trying to figure out how to stay on the trail or how to get back to the trail or how to bring everybody else back on the trail. And maybe you find out this is the wrong trail. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or maybe the trail stops and you have to build a new trail. Right. Like, oh, there's supposed to be a bridge here. Where's the bridge? Oh, it got washed up. Oh, crap. <laughs> okay. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, you know, you can plan all you want and you could be awesome at planning, but um, you got to roll with the punches. And this is what is entrepreneurship. I mean, it happens all the time. I mean, exactly as you said, right? 
everybody had everything planned until COVID happened. And now what are you going to do? Yep. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about SaaS. I know you've done a lot of work in, in the SaaS space. And for anyone listening who, who doesn't know what SaaS is, it stands for Software as a Service. And I'm going to give you kind of my description. And you tell me if I'm right, wrong, or if things are missing. But I, I think of a SaaS, kind of the SaaS model, as being a software that lives in the cloud. And its revenue is mostly based on a subscription model. And the benefit of that for the company or whoever the, the, the user is, is they don't have to have and, and maintain as much expensive hardware like their own servers and things like that. They don't have as much capital outlay at the beginning. It's a more predictable expense that they can expense as it occurs. Yeah. Um, and then obviously there are some wins for, for the actual SaaS company themselves. They get recurring, predictable pretty predictable. I mean, you might lose customers, but you, you get a predictive um, revenue model. You don't have thousands of different customers all using different versions of your software that are going to require different levels of maintenance. Everyone's pretty much on the same. You know, everyone's up to date because you're updating it on, on the back end. So you don't have to worry about uh, too much of that. Uh, you know, that makes sales more simple. That makes maintenance more simple. Um, and it just makes managing customers um, and a more sticky customer. So and did I miss kind of anything in what this, this SaaS entails or do you define it differently? No, you're absolutely on point. SaaS is, the analogy that I give is SaaS is commercial real estate. Uh, sorry, online commercial real estate. So you are paying a subscription mm -hmm. for using that asset, using that real estate, using that service. You're paying it on a monthly basis, which is fantastic. Except the difference is if you have, say, $20 million of real estate, right? That real estate at maximum can grow 5, 10, maybe 15% on a really, really good year. Whereas if you have SaaS, you can grow 15% monthly, yeah, 500% yearly, 2,000% yearly. So SaaS is a business that gives you recurring revenue, which is most important, right? If somebody tells you otherwise, bullshit. <laughs> if somebody doesn't understand recurring revenue, they should not be in business. SaaS gives you recurring revenue, but... Most recurring revenue businesses don't grow as fast. SaaS is one business that can grow just as fast as a technology company. So yeah. um, do you use uh, Uber Eats or DoorDash or one of those delivery services, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Right. So DoorDash has this $10 Dash Pass, which you pay them $10 a month and you don't have to pay any delivery fee. Why? They would technically make more money on the delivery fee, but they would rather prefer you pay them $10 and them to waive the delivery fees because now that $10 is $120 a year, right? Right. The delivery fee is valued at maybe 2x multiple, right? Right. But the $10 a month is valued at 10x multiple. So you may be losing some cash flow, but you're making that difference five times over when you sell the company or in the valuation. Right. That makes sense. So it, and on the flip side of that, if I'm looking to buy stock in a SaaS or in a software company, and the option is one kind of legacy software company that's not using a SaaS model, meaning you have to download their software or go to the store and actually, believe it or not, buy a CD or whatever and down, you know, and then. Like usually, GameStop, right? It, exactly. Exactly. Like GameStop, you're going and physically buying a product. I'm going to value automatically, assuming all other financials are exactly the same, the SAFT company more because it's predictable, recurring revenue that's more sticky people usually 
if you don't order from Uber Eats for three months, most people are going to continue to pay the the, the bill. Yep. I mean, they're not going to cancel it. Most people. Right. Whereas right. if you don't order for three months and you're on a delivery fee, that's three months they just went without revenue. So it's a lot harder to run a business that way when you don't know how much is coming in on a quarterly, you know, monthly, annual basis. Is that, is that right? Very much. And Wall Street is run by bankers. Let's not kid ourselves. Bankers are the ones who invented recurring revenue. Yeah. You want to sell your company to a big buyer, to a you want to have a big IPO, you want to sell your company to Oracle or what have you, recurring revenue. And if your business is software as a service or in software, it's scalable to begin with. So one of the things I always chuckle at or laugh at is um, when analysts, the so-called smart people, they are breaking Elon Musk's balls about, hey, you know, they're not making earnings. You know, they, they, they didn't, you know, deliver as many cars as they could have or should have. I'm like, all right, you idiots. Um, Tesla is a great company. It is a technology-enabled company. It's a hard tech company. It's not a tech company. A tech company is Zoom, where all you got to do is put in 500 more routers or, you know, get um, uh, 200 more data, uh, you know, data banks or something and just scale the company. Tesla, to build an extra 100,000 cars, they need to build factories. They need to obtain land. They need to get permits. They need to... Um, you know, set up buildings, they need to import machinery, you know, they need to buy batteries, manufacture batteries. Cement, if they're building a building, cement takes 24 hours to cure. There's nothing you or I or any smartest analyst can do about it. Mm-hmm. So when they give Tesla a hard time about not making its commitments, I just laugh. I'm like, Guys, you have no idea. It's not a technology company. It's a great company that's technology enabled. Yeah, certainly. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, they're not manufacturing virtual cars. These are real cars that require real raw materials, that require real construction, that require assembly lines, that require workers, many, 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 many things. And and if you think about many of the things Elon Musk has said over the years, one of the main, and and, and this was about the time I really, I've, I think Tesla has an amazing story. The time I really started to understand the company more was when Elon started talking so much about production hell. And there was a period in time when the chances of Tesla surviving past that production hell as is without some sort of, you know, being gobbled up by somebody because they had to, or, or going through bankruptcy or something was, was pretty high that that was, that could happen to them because the feat of creating what it takes to create, to build cars or anything really, but especially cars where you're talking about thousands and thousands of parts, hundreds and hundreds of suppliers, all of these things, it's very, very difficult. And I think to your point, um, that's not the same as a Zoom who just needs to go buy more cloud space from Amazon or some other cloud partner. Precisely. It doesn't matter how big of a check Elon Musk can write. He can't build a factory in a week. Right. Doesn't matter. Whereas Zoom, if they just need more bandwidth, they they can just go get more servers with Amazon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go back to your time um, and and kind of what you do, because I'm, I'm interested. You do most of your work, I assume, with public or private companies and I guess government entities, but do you personally invest in the um, private equity markets at all? I mean, do you do any VC stuff or do you invest in public equity markets or both? I am a, I am a rogue economist. Um, I like that. So I do dabble a bit in public equities um, and I have a few investments in private markets, but, uh, unfortunately in my business, because I'm a third party stand up opinion, 
I cannot in- invest in the companies that I'm working with. Sure. But what I can do is as I am looking under the hood of the companies that I am valuing, I get to see the industry. I get to evaluate the industry. I have to see the thing is, as I said, learning the story is more important than learning the numbers. So I spend 80% of my time learning the story. Honestly, James, people think I spend 80% of my time learning the numbers. Numbers are easy. Now, I can buy that. I mean, I do the same thing on the, on the equity, public equity side. Yeah. So once I understand the story behind the company, I get to understand the good and the bad and the ugly or SWOT analyses, as the smart people call it. And when I see the SWOT analyses, then I look at, okay, who are the suppliers in this industry? Do I like this industry? Where is the end product going? So I end up investing in the different parts of that supply chain where I think I'm going to get the best return. I don't invest in that company or even in its competitors. But anything outside of their purview within that supply chain is fair game. Makes sense. That's seems like the reasonable thing to do. Uh, and I don't follow the private equity world too much um, outside of being entertained by the VC space on Twitter sometimes because it's so outrageous. Um, it seems like from what I can follow that there's a pretty large, you know, venture capital boom going on right now. I, I don't know what normal is in that world. Is that true? Is that what you're seeing on, on the ground there? Or is it is that more just optics? Um, what you see in the media is um, different than what the real world is, right? So media likes to exaggerate things and likes to only talk about the success stories. And media, you know, all you will hear is, oh, so-and-so company raised $10 million at a $100 million valuation from James Vermillion. You will never hear anything about the company's products. You will never hear anything about the company's revenue. You will never hear anything about the company's CEO, which is unfortunate. So the way I explain to people is in the startup or the venture world, most of these companies, they never have a profit, right? Mm -hmm. They are lucky if they have revenue and they're extremely lucky if they have a product. Yet, James, they need to attract investors, Mm-hmm. They need to attract customers and they need to attract employees. But how do they do that without revenue, product, or profit? They do that using a currency called valuation. By telling people, oh my God, my company is worth half a billion dollars. And once they say that, nobody asks, what's your revenue? <laughs> what's your product? Who's your CEO? What's your management? No, nobody asks you that. They just say, oh, your valuation is so much. Great, let's invest. I mean, with God's grace, it's been great for business. I'm not complaining. Sure. All I'm saying is, I'm not sure if it's the best benchmark. Well, tell me about that as far as pre-revenue companies. And just to give listeners who maybe don't follow, you know, this is kind of it's not something you really hear about if you're not reading the business section of newspapers or watching, you know, it's not something you see about or hear about every day, but there is, there are a lot of pre-revenue companies. So a company that has an idea, they've probably got some plans around that idea. They've potentially got some intellectual capital, um, you know, in, in trademarks or patents that maybe is, is valuable. Um, sometimes not just cause you have a patent doesn't mean it's worth anything. Um, how do you value? I mean, that's a, obviously a different scenario than most of the companies I'm looking at that maybe aren't always profitable yet, but they at least generally have a lot of revenue and you can start to touch and see and feel profitability in the future. But that's not always the case on these early startups. So what are you looking for as, a, as, as someone who's going to appraise a company that really hasn't done much yet? Um, as far as revenue? Great question. And people think um, that there is some big fancy science behind this. There isn't. Um, So if I were to open the kimono, 
lot of it is people say that, okay, I want to raise capital. I have no revenue, but I have a product. Okay, fantastic. At least you have a product. How much are you looking to raise? Half a million dollars. Okay. How much are you willing to give up for that half a million dollars? Uh, 5% of my company. Okay. Up to, I always ask this question, 5%. (laughs) Up to, you know, <laughs> it's, it's kind of like, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like going to a car dealership, right? You know, go to a car dealership and you say, I want to buy this car. I want to buy a car. Okay. How much are you willing to spend? I don't know, 500 bucks a month. And the smart sales guy will always say up to <laughs> 600 a month. They start at 600, right? So I always ask this question, 5% up to 10%. Okay, great. So. Simple math, and this is no rocket science. You don't need to be a genius to do this math, right? Half a million divided by 5% comes out to $10 million. Your starting valuation is $10 million, up to 10% for $5 million. So between your valuations, between 5 and $10 million. Now, where between five and ten million? That's really the question. And why would somebody pay you between five and ten million for a pre-revenue company? Let's try to answer those questions. Because for venture capitalists, for early stage venture capitalists, they know they're investing more than the idea. They're investing in the founder or the CEO or the management team. Because if you've got the right people in place, then everything else will fall into place. Again, back to the story. If the story of the CEO and the management team is checking out why they're doing this, then everything else will fall into place. It's tough enough for me to value a company that's got a product, that has employees, that has customers, that has revenue, profits. Uh, all of these things. And it's, and it's all, by the way, very, well, it's supposed to be very transparent. I mean, when you're investing in public companies, you know, there are requirements of what they must disclose as far as financials. So you really do get a peek kind of behind the curtain in making those decisions. I can imagine investing in a a pre-revenue startup. You're exactly right. There's just not much to go on. It's, it's, does this is this a good idea? Is the I look at TAM a lot, total addressable market. Are there a lot of customers that are people that could be customers? Do I believe in this founder to go get them? That's that's kind of how I would probably sum it up. Pretty much. And 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 TAM is a great benchmark. Uh, but one of the things that VCs look at more than TAM is they're like, okay, what is that? tip of that needle that you're going after right now. Look, if you try to boil the ocean, you're not going to get anywhere. So which sliver of that pie, if you will, right. are you looking to go after? Once you go after that little tiny sliver, you can go after the rest of the pie. But first tell me, what's that little sliver you're going after? Well, and one thing I've seen investing in public companies, and the ones that I think have really done incredibly well quickly that sliver has been so important, those early adopters, and not just getting them to buy your product, but getting them to sell your product. And some of the companies that I, that just quickly come to mind um, are, going back to Tesla would be one, Apple, Peloton has been a recent one that I think yeah. uh, if, if someone has a Peloton, that you're going to know about it pretty quickly <laughs> because they love it and they like talking about it. Um, Oh shoot! I just had I had one other one that uh, oh like Lululemon oh Fitbit Lululemon. yeah Fitbit. yeah I got Fitbit because everybody my mom my dad my brother everybody had a Fitbit and you know they were breaking my balls that oh you probably don't even have two thousand steps a day we get fifteen thousand <laughs> there, there really were and guess what happened I got myself a Fitbit and I. Blew all those fuckers out of the way. <laughs> You're like, hey, you know what? Piss off. I've had three glasses of whiskey today and two cigars. I'm doing just fine. Thank you. No. And I, you know, I would do 10,000 steps by like one o'clock in the afternoon because I'm one of those guys who pace when I'm talking. In a, Me too. And they're like, and, and, and they're like, oh, you probably put the Fitbit on the dog. I'm like, Jesus, I just can't win with you people, can I? And this is my family. Oh, tough family. I love it. <laughs> I love it. 
I think this will be an interesting question because you've done a lot as far as areas of value, valuing different businesses. What's the hardest, not necessarily company, I don't know if you can or can't say that, but just type of business that you've, you just really struggled to kind of come up with what you thought was, was the right valuation? I don't think it's the industry. I think it has more to do with expectations of the owner. If the owner has this expectation in his or her mind that, okay, my company is worth $15 million, $150 million, it's hard to talk them off that ledge because they've already made plans, right? So if they think their company is worth $150 million, they've already made plans for the $150 million. And God forbid a schmuck like me is going to come in and tell them, sorry, it's not. They're going to find somebody who's going to give them that answer that, yeah, <laughs> your company is worth $150 million. And, and I'm sure there are people out there. Um, yeah. Then the problem occurs is when um, that valuation doesn't match with the expectations of the buyer. So what ends up happening is they're able to sell that company for $150 million, but it's not an all cash deal. Mm. they anchor themselves to 150 and then the buyer takes them to town buyer right. says, Oh, I'm going to give you $20 million up front and the rest is going to be earnouts, And I'm going to give you shares in the new company. And, you know, they get them all twisted because they just married to that 150 million. The recent transaction that I was working on was this, the owner just had in mind that his company is worth 200 million bucks. That's really interesting. Buyer that paid him 200 million bucks, except, it was all tied up into earnings and um, future revenue and profitability and growth and all that. But the owner took us minimum like, you know, $10 million up front and the rest was all tied up. Like, well, that's what you wanted. You got what you wanted. So in other words, the $150 or $150 million deal may not have been as good in practice as a $50 million deal where they got paid you know, most of that 50 million up front, because let's face it, there's a risk. And yeah. I mean, that that's really what it boils down to is, you know, a lot can happen in between now and 10 years from now, when if everything goes perfectly, you end up getting your, your 150 million. So you're really weighing the risk of getting paid today versus getting paid if X and number of conditions are met. And but... But now they can go around to parties and tell their friends that I sold my company for $150 million. Okay, sure. Yeah, enjoy. <laughs> so, I mean, who am I to say no? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, we are uh, coming up on time. I don't want to take too much of your time, even though we are just, we're pretty chill at this point, smoking and drinking. So I'm not going to be in too big of a hurry to close this out. But I wanted to start with kind of the ending questions that I like to to bring up because I, I always enjoy the answers. I mean, this is more for me than anything. And the first one is, uh, Bharat, what does wealth mean to you? Wealth is a state of mind of happiness. Mm -hmm. If, uh, you know, you know, as uh, uh, Jefferson said, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. If you feel you're in that state of mind of where you've getting close to being happy, right? You're almost there. You can almost taste it because none of us will ever be happy. Right. But, uh, you at least are getting close to it, right? Approaching infinity. Um, if you can say that you're getting close to it, that's a good state of mind because that also keeps you on your toes. It's not there yet. It's almost there. It's almost there. You almost got to taste it almost there. That's a good place to be. And that's wealth. Wealth is not just about, you know, having a big house, big car and all that. Yeah, it's that too, but it's not just that. You got to still be working. You got to still be doing your daily things. You got to still be happy, contributing to society, helping your family, helping friends and all those good things. Yeah, I like the idea of just continuing to reach. I think it can be easy for people to kind of get complacent and stop doing some of the things that would maybe make you healthier or continue to, to 
help you mature emotionally and intellectually um, because those things do require work. Now, I think the reward is is very, very high. But when I look around, I and maybe I'm projecting or maybe I'm maybe misunderstanding or or whatever, but it certainly seems sometimes that so many people have have kind of stopped trying to 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 do better, to be better. And, you know, that's an area where I always want to and and, and I'll have my failures, no doubt, and I have before. But I always want to keep improving. I want to be, I want to be smarter and and wiser, happier and and healthier tomorrow than I was today. Um, and, and and that's really, I think, a good point. You know, it's 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 easy to stop, and especially when you just look at money and say, okay, I've got enough money. Well, wealth is not just money. Wealth is everything else. Wealth is abundance of everything. Family, love, community. As you've seen the movie, um, I'm sure you have. Um, uh, Jerry Maguire. Oh yeah, and that yeah. one. You know, Cuba Gooding Jr. says "quan." Right. Yeah, it's a beautiful word. You know, love, community, respect, and the dollars too. That's wealth. Quan. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. And then finally, we'll wrap it up with this one. Um, if you could go back, you know, 15, 20 years and give yourself a piece of advice on business or investing or, um, wealth or any kind of topics in that sphere, what would, what would it be? I would say be patient. You know, when you're young, you're always taught short term you're always talked up to the next semester up to the next midterm up to the next cycle up to the next season no that's not that's not the way to live that's the problem we have in the public markets right now our ceos are just playing quarter to quarter those ceos aren't exactly happy jeff bezos doesn't play quarter to quarter elon musk doesn't play quarter to quarter they wouldn't they couldn't give a fuck about the earnings or earnings calls they're not on those calls Right, they're not playing. So think long term, as as uh, Simon Sinek says, be an infinite player. If you're an infinite player, you just keep doing what you're doing on a day to day basis, working on your culture, working on your daily things, right? And everything else falls into place. It's 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 that's great. It's that compounding effect, and you can't see it from one day to the next. You really can't see it from one month to the next. You can barely see it a quarter to the next, really a year from the next. But when you look back over, you know, a decade, all the, all the hard work, all the little decisions, they start to, um, they start to build up and compound and good things you've done in the past, whether it's in investing or just in your life have created new good things that have happened and led you to, to meet new people who are going to help propel you, to uh, a ne- another level of, of, of being and, and enjoyment. So I think that's great. That was a great answer. Great answer. Thank you. Well, Barat, before we finish up, where can the folks um, learn more about you? And um, I know your YouTube channel is a great starting point for anyone interested in, in valuations, but where else can they find you? Uh, best way to find me is go to um, my YouTube channel called What's It Worth? Um, if you put in my Barat, uh, my name Barat, or what's it worth um, on YouTube, it'll pop up. And uh, uh, there's a link um, which you can follow uh, in the about page uh, to reach me. And if you have questions about valuations, private or company or uh, public companies, just reach out. Happy to help. Uh, I love educating people about valuations because it's such a black box and it's designed that way by people in my world. Um, I call it job security. Um, but, you know, I, I like to um, unveil what's behind the curtains. So happy to do it for you. What a treat. I, I didn't expect to get the pipe out today. Uh, but uh, when you got that cigar out, I just felt so inspired and enjoyed s- sipping on some awesome whiskey from Old Carter and really enjoyed talking to you. I learned, I learned a ton. So I know everyone else will as well. And it was a, a true pleasure. This was, uh, I can truly say, this was the most fun podcast I've been on. Um, yes. Uh, the bourbon bourbon was the icing on the cake. And the fact that 
you were such a relaxed host um, and informed host, I should say. Um, that was um, uh, very uh, pleasing. Thank you, James. Well, thank you. And I'm serious. When I'm out in the Bay Area, I'm 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 going to get that get on that boat with you. Ping me seriously. It'll be a lot of fun. Awesome. Uh, you, you'll have a great time. I I don't doubt that one bit. So thanks so much, Barat, and uh, I really really appreciate your time. Thank you, James. Thanks again for listening to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a favor and share with others you think may also enjoy it. And don't forget to subscribe or follow us, and reviews are always welcome. The slate of great guests continues over the coming months, so I'll keep drinking if you keep listening. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.